Pastor Toby, thank you so much for coming to preach to us this morning. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Good morning to you all. It's great to be here to worship the Lord with you all today. And uh, I bring you greetings from the saints in Moscow, Idaho. And uh, if you're ever up in the area, please please come visit us. And uh, as it, it's, a, it's been a great pleasure to get to know uh, your pastors and uh, the leaders of your, uh, your church here. And, uh, and it's just, it's, it's wonderful. Um, it's one of those places where you come, you know, I've, I've taught and preached at a number of different churches. And, and, uh, but, but there are, uh, there are certain ones where you come and you worship, you, you, you meet with people and you think, oh, well, these are my people, you know, and, and so, it's felt very much the same way um, this weekend, and um, of course, I was here a year ago with you all for a fight night with the men, and the same kind of, uh, just just wonderful, uh, same kind of uh, camaraderie, and so it's been a, a real delight uh, to continue to get to know you all and see God's, God's work here in South Louisiana. Um, the, the text I want to uh, preach from uh, is just one verse uh, from Galatians uh, chapter 6, uh, verse 9. Um, these are the words of the living God. Galatians 6, verse 9 says this, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we bow now before your word, we ask you to give us your Holy Spirit so that our mouths will be open wide to receive it like, like hungry babies. Father, enlarge our hearts so that we will be able to receive as much of it as we can possibly bear. And so may your blessing rest upon us in such a way that you would draw this whole city, this whole region, to yourself and to your glory. And we ask for this in the mighty name of Jesus, and amen. So this message is meant to be an encouragement for continuing in the work of reformation, continuing in the work of bringing uh, the kingdom of God and his blessings to South Louisiana. This, this, uh, this, uh, um, I, I've mentioned this a couple of times, but I just, you know, feel like it's one of those, like, bona fides that I just gotta keep telling you about. But my dad was born in New Iberia. So, um, now, I've never lived here. This is only the second time I've been down here. Maybe the third time I drove through one time. So, that's all I got. But I did grow up with a bottle of Tabasco sauce on our dinner table. And every once in a while, my dad would look at us and say, kids, that's where your papa was born. So, we, you know, there's like a deep, like, reverence in my heart for y'all <laughs> and for Tabasco sauce. <laughs> but I want to encourage you. I want to give you a word of encouragement to not grow weary in doing good and recognizing that the good that you're doing is hard, difficult, and mostly unglamorous. Most of the good work you're called to is the kind of good work that you don't really want to Instagram. 
Changed another diaper. Did that laundry. Nailed it. Went to work all day long. Killed it. Uh, got up in the middle of the night with puking kids. Nailed that. Uh, but there's so much of faithful Christian living that is what you're doing is you're laying a brick on, on, on the facade of this cathedral you're building. And, and you, and you, you, you know, maybe you've seen the pictures of these old cathedrals that, that like the Christians in, in the late Middle Ages that built these massive cathedrals took generations, hundreds of years to build. And, and, and hundreds of people labored knowing that they'd never worship in it. That maybe their grandkids or great grandkids or great great grandkids would if, you know, some barbarian invasion didn't happen. And yet they went to work every day and they did their mason work and they figured out how to do the, the flying buttresses and the stained glass. Just little by little, little by little, believing that God was going to take it and make something Beautiful. That's the work that Christians are called to, and that's why we need encouragement regularly. Don't grow weary. Don't get tired. And, and particularly what, what Paul says here in Galatians 6 is, let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season you will reap. We will reap if we do not faint. There's a harvest to be had. There's fruit to be had. In the context of urging folks to eat their own bread and work quietly, and Thessalonians, he says, he's just encouraging them, keep working quietly. Go to work, do your job, come home, love your people, go to bed, get up and do it again. Don't grow weary. He says, brethren, do not be weary in well-doing. Second Thessalonians 3.13, same encouragement. Same encouragement. In Hebrews it says we're to run with endurance, the race set before us. And it says, for consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners, such conflict with these people that hated him, Jesus. Lest ye be weary and faint in your minds, for you have not yet resisted unto blood in your striving against sin. So I want to encourage you, but I actually want to encourage you maybe in a, in a somewhat unusual way. I want to encourage you by provoking you. Or at least that's my goal. I want to provoke you. Now, of course, there's certain warnings about not provoking one another. So I don't want to provoke you in the bad way. I want to provoke you in the good way. Right? So in Galatians, it says, let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another or envying one another. So not that kind. That's the bad kind. That's a discouraging kind of provocation. And fathers, of course, are told not to provoke their children to wrath. So there's certainly a kind of provoking that's discouraging, not encouraging at all. But the Bible also describes a kind of provoking that is encouraging. For example, it says this in Hebrews 10, it says, and let us consider one another to provoke one another to love and good works. We're to try to be getting one another to love more and work more. Do more good. So I want to provoke you to love one another even more, do even more good work, and so not grow weary in doing good. 
I'm going to give you two examples of this from the scriptures, two examples of godly provocation, and then, and then try to push it into the corners for you. Uh, the, the first example comes from Paul's discussion of the unbelieving Jews in Romans 11. Remember, Paul's answering the objection, why? How come, you know, if Jesus is the Messiah, how come not more of the Jews are believing in him? He's the Messiah of the Jews, and he's writing to the Romans and a church mostly of Gentiles, presumably. And, and they've got this question, if he's the Messiah of the Jews, why are so few of the Jews believing in this Messiah? And part of the answer that Paul gives in Romans 9 is that, well, God is sovereign, and he softens some hearts, and he hardens some hearts. And he is the potter, we are the clay, he is the Lord, and he will do as he pleases. That's part of the answer, but that's not the whole answer. Because in Romans 11, Paul says, there's a broader plan actually at work. There's a broader plan at work. Paul says this in in Romans 11, verse 11. He's talking about the Jews. He says, have they stumbled so that they will ultimately fall? And Paul says, God forbid. God forbid that, that, that all the Jews would, would, would fall away. He says, he says, rather, through their fall, salvation has come to the Gentiles in order to provoke them to jealousy. He says, God's allowed a, a partial hardening of the Jews. A bunch of them have rejected the Messiah. They put him to death. They're persecuting the Christians. He says, yeah, it's, it's bad. It's not good. But, but what God had promised, and this goes back to Deuteronomy, in the book of Deuteronomy, God had promised all these blessings on his people, Israel, as they came into the land. He says, God's going to bless you. God's going to bless you in your house. God's going to bless you in your kitchen. God's going to bless you in your fields. God's going to bless you with your kids. And then he says, but if you forget me and you turn to idols, th- th- these are all going to be taken away. All these blessings are going to be taken away. And, and, and in Deuteronomy, it says, and they will be given to another nation in order to provoke you to jealousy. When you turn away, I'm going to give those blessings to someone else, and it's in order to make you upset. What happened to our blessings? What happened to our, our, our fruitful harvest? What happened to our, our, our fruitful families? What ha- and and it's, it's supposed to wake you up and get you to turn back to God. It's to provoke you. He continues in Romans 11, he says, For I'm speaking to you Gentiles in Rome, inasmuch as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my office, if by any means I may provoke to emulation or imitation them which are of my flesh, the Jews, and might save some of them. He's basically saying, you know, frankly, the reason why I'm so enthusiastic about you Gentiles coming to the gospel is because I want you to come under the blessings of God so that my countrymen will see the blessing of God and they'll repent of rejecting the Messiah and they'll come in. He says, you know, don't feel used or anything. But the reason I'm so enthusiastic about you coming to the gospel is because I want my countrymen to see the blessing that comes from the gospel. And I want them to repent of their unbelief and hard-heartedness and want that blessing. I want them to, he says, as the gospel comes to the nations, I want it to provoke the Jews who have deep in their history this understanding of God's covenant blessing, deep in their bones that this is how God made the world. And I want them to wake up. I want them to come to their senses and say, you know what? Even the servants in our father's house get better food than this. 
That's what that parable's echoing. So there's one kind of provocation. This is the design that Paul says, this is God's plan. That his blessing, and, and you know, this is his plan broadly with Jews and Gentiles, that his blessing would be provoking and that people would see it and say, I want that. Where'd you get that? Where'd you get all that blessing? From the God who made heaven and earth. There's a reason why health and wealth gospels get so much traction. Okay, part of it's just natural human greed. That's part of it, you know, free stuff. Uh, and so there's, that's attractive to people and, you know, um, and that's one thing. But I think part of the reason why health and wealth gospels get the traction they get to is because they actually have some verses. <laughs> there are verses in the Bible that talk about God's blessing. And not just, you know, heaven when you die. Sorry, I don't know how to do this with the mic, you know. I'm not used to this Brittany mic. Um, uh, the, the, um, it's, it's, not, it's not just heaven when you die. It's not just super spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Of course, it includes that. It's ultimately life with Christ forever. It's ultimately for, um, uh, uh, heaven. It's ultimately all things made new. Absolutely. But there are verses in the Bible that talk about God's intention to bless his people here and now. Also, Jesus himself said, there's no one who's given up houses and fathers and mothers and children and lands for my sake and for the sake of the gospel that will not receive a hundredfold with persecutions in this life and in the life to come, eternal life. That's Jesus. Now that's, you know, that's not health and wealth gospel because he says, and persecutions. And persecutions in this life and in the life to come, life eternal. But Jesus is the one who says, I promise you that giving everything up for my sake Taking up your cross and following me, I promise you, there is blessing in that. And there's blessing in that in this life, as well as in the life to come. But our, our reaction and our overreaction to this really, you know, again, it, they, they have some verses, but then they forget the other verses, which is the verses like, he is the Lord and he can do whatever he wants. And sometimes the best thing for us is going to be cancer. Sometimes the best thing for us is to be, to go through a season of loss and difficulty and hardship. And yet at the same time, for those who, who cling to him, they find that he is still there and he is still blessing them even there in the hardship, providing for them. But we overreact to the health and wealth thing, and we, and we, and we end up in, in many sectors of, of the Christian church that are not that, uh, with this really weirdly kind of pietistic guilt over having anything. Really, I'm really sorry I have money. I feel really bad that I have a car. 
I feel really awful that I have an extra bedroom. I feel awful. And, and people play this guilt game, of course, and then they show you the commercials with somebody that doesn't have anything, and it's, you know, you, you greedy pig. And there's just something inside everybody that's like, am I? I did have a really good dinner last night. The Christians, we, we need to think like biblical Christians. We want to think the way that Bible teaches us to think, which means that Christians can, and not only can, but must enjoy the good gifts of God that he gives in this world. If God gives the gift, is it gratitude to say, I feel awful about having this? God, I mean, is that how you want your kids to be? You know, you, you save up and you give them a bike for Christmas or for their birthday, and it's like that bike, that they, and they love it, and then all of a sudden they're like, I feel awful about having this. I can't really enjoy it. None of the other kids on the street have one like this. I don't know what kid ever did that. If you know any kid like that, please introduce me to them. Now, but we do that in weird ways where God blesses us and gives us the promotion or gives us the house or gives us the car or gives us uh, this family. And you're like, I don't even, I mean, look at these kids. They're amazing. And then you're like, I don't, uh, I don't deserve this. That's not gratitude. That's not gratitude. God is the great giver of every good gift. Now he's sovereign. He is personal. He's not a machine. He's not a vending machine. You don't give the tithe and get the car. You don't get the tithe and get the healing. No, it's not like that. He is a personal God. He is a sovereign God. And he does as he pleases. And our answer will be, whether it's blessing or hardship, blessed be the name of the Lord. Because he is good. And everything that he gives is good, even the hard things. He is giving us good things. And, but what we need to see is all the goodness in this world that God made and God gives and God wants us to enjoy and be grateful to him for, all these blessings are tokens of God himself. God is the father of lights from which every good and perfect gift comes down. With whom there is no shadow of turning. He is constant in his goodness. He is constant in his generosity. He is constant in his abundance and goodness. And so we're to see all the goodness around us and every bit that we get to enjoy as, as these tokens of God himself giving to us, inviting us further up and further in. You see this? There's way more where that came from. Don't, don't, be, don't be satisfied. Don't, don't think, oh, this is it. You know, the latest Ford. What are you kidding? That's, that's just the, those are the crumbs. That, that, that's telling you where it came from. That's telling you that your Father in Heaven has infinitely more than that. It's good. Enjoy it. Thank Him for it. Bless Him for it. And think, man, and He's so much greater. 
And, and the gifts he has are even greater. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Heaven, the new heavens and the new earth are going to make the comforts and the gifts of this world seem like child's play. Our problem is not that we are hungry for glory and pleasure and good things. Actually, our fundamental problem is we're not hungry enough. We're not hungry enough. C.S. Lewis puts this really well in his, uh, he gave a sermon one time called The Weight of Glory. He wasn't a preacher, but occasionally he got invited to preach it. And he preached a sermon called The Weight of Glory. He says this, he, he says, our desires are not too strong, but too weak. He says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. You're making mud pies in, you know, in, the, in, in your back alley and somebody says, you want to go to the beach? And you're like, no, I got mud pies. <laughs> There's this place called the beach. There's this place called the beach, an ocean, where you can make mud pies for miles. Nah, I like my mud pies. C.S. Lewis says we're far too easily pleased. Here's my other example of godly provocation. In 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, by the way, is is just one of those letters that like if you if you really follow what's going on is insane. But the pastor Paul is walking this high wire that is like every if you want to be a pastor, Bible teacher, I mean just any kind of leader, frankly. Study 2 Corinthians, it's insane what he does. Remember the context is remember 1 Corinthians? 1 Corinthians was kind of intense. I mean, just, it's a, it's a letter full of correction and rebuke. I hear there are divisions among you. One of you guys is shacking up with your stepmom. You need to stop going to prostitutes and stop getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. And yeah, remember love. (laughs) I get one nice chapter. Love. (laughs) But pretty much the, the, that letter is like, you know, blow your hair back if you have any. You know, singe your eyebrows. That's Paul, right? And so, now, but what's happened is he sent this letter. It's a stinging rebuke. I don't know what you guys think you're doing. It's divisions. You're getting drunk. You're sleeping around. It's, it's, it, you know, all kinds of, of stuff. And, and, and in the, in the, and in that context, these other teachers, these false teachers show up in Corinth and, and they say, guys, that guy, Paul, he's actually not a real apostle. He's not a real apostle. Check the lists. Paul's not on any of the lists. You ever notice that? The apostles are listed in the Gospels. Paul's not on one of the lists. He's one of these, he says in 1 Corinthians, at the end he says, he was one born out of due time. I'm not worthy to be called an apostle, but I am because Jesus showed up and he confronted me. I saw him, he's alive, and I've been commissioned to preach. But he's, he's being accused of not being a real apostle. And then, and then these false teachers say, and you know what? You know one of the reasons why you know he's not a real apostle is because he's always angry at you guys and he's really harsh and he's always asking for money. 
And then you know what 2 Corinthians is? Paul comes and he says, I'm a real apostle. I don't need letters to prove I'm an apostle. You're my letter. You're my proof I am an apostle. You prove that my gospel is real because God transformed your lives. And he says, then I'm not sorry for being so harsh with you. You needed it. And in fact, it worked wonders in you because it created in you a sorrow that drove you to repentance. Not sorry for my harshness. And if I need to show up again, I'll, I'll, I'll do it in person too. I'll say the same thing in person. And then he says, and how about that offering? He like just drives it right up in there. He says, I'm not interested in your money. I want you. And, but then but it's, it's more than that. It's like, I mean, I'm already like, I can't do that. I'm, I'm done. Can't do that. You, you can't ask him for money now. You know, like you're just walking right into that, right, Paul? And no, but he, he, he's dicing it carefully. No, it's not about you. It's, about, it's not about the money. It's about you. It's not about me. It's about you. Because the gospel is real. But, but he, go, I mean, it's like, you think that's close enough? Like he's going to, the bumper is going to kiss the other bumper. He says, the thing is, is right after I left you guys last time and you had promised that offering, I went up to Macedonia and I told them how much you had promised to give. And the Macedonians are even poorer than you. And they promised to give and they gave something way above what anyone thinks is reasonable. And they did so because they heard of your generosity. And now I'm going to be coming back through and I'm going to be picking up the offering in Macedonia. And there's a good chance that some of them Macedonians might want to come down and visit you guys because they've heard about how generous you are. And it would be really awkward if I show up and you don't have that gift. You see how he's provoking them? He's provoking them to keep their word, provoking them to be as generous as they had promised to be, not because Paul wants a cent of their money, but because he is trying to, he's playing them off each other in godliness. He's trying to provoke them to be more godly. You see what they did and how, how God worked in their heart? Don't you want to do that? And, you know, and there's like all kinds of ditches here. You're, you're, you know, if you have any thought, you know, like, uh-oh, that could, that could be bad motivations in there. And Paul says, I know. But there's a, there's a path right here. As you see what God did in them. I know what God did in you. How about it? When God created Adam in the garden, the first thing he told Adam about was the menu. Ever think about that? First thing he tells Adam, go read it. It's just in Genesis 2. The first thing he tells him about is the food. Why? Because men are always hungry. No, really. <laughs> he knew that he, he made Adam hungry. He says, the food's right here. Now there's one tree in the middle. Don't eat that one. But everything else is food. Because he made us hungry. You know the other thing he tells him about? The gold. He says there's a river that runs down through this garden, Adam, and it divides into four. And that first, that first part of it, it goes off. Down there in the land of Havilah is gold. And the gold of that land is good. 
There's also bedulum stones, other precious stones. God tells Adam about the food, and he tells him about the gold. Why? Because he made him hungry. He made him hungry for food. He made him hungry for good things. He made him hungry for glory. He made him hungry to build things, create things, invent things, discover things, and make beautiful, glorious things. God made Adam hungry for that. But Adam sinned. And so what happens then is God creates us with this hunger, this desire. But then in the fall, that desire, that hunger gets twisted. Now, now you know that in the fall, when we fall in Adam and we become sinners, the, the, the image of God is not obliterated. There are still good things in us that reflect our Creator. But all of it's been kind of cracked. All of it gets a little bit distorted and twisted. And so you've got both of these things going on. You've got a good hunger, a good desire, and then it gets twisted, and it gets twisted into lust, and it gets twisted into greed. And it gets twisted into envy and covetousness and vain ambition and selfish ambition. And so what happens is when, when God is at work and when God saves a human being, when God regenerates and gives a new heart to a son or daughter of Adam, he begins to undo that. Pieces of it are still there. The flesh is still there. But what he's, he's, but notice what that means. When you become a Christian, God doesn't then just take the organ of desire and cut it out. He he doesn't say, and now you don't want anything because you're a Christian. Now you're a Christian, so you're not hungry and you don't like gold. No. What does God do? No, what he's doing is he's, he's healing that brokenness and putting it back to where it was supposed to be, where we hung, we hunger and thirst for good things. We desire good things. Rather than being twisted into lust, it's being, it's being reformed and healed and sanctified into love. Instead of selfish ambition and vain glory, that's being, that's being healed and restored to a desire for the glory of God and the glory of His kingdom and the restoration of this whole world. Instead of a selfish envy and covetousness, it's, it's being restored to actually a, a godly zeal and, and an emulation and an imitation of seeing the good things that God gives other people and saying, I serve a God who gives like that. It's interesting, actually, in the, in the New Testament, the word that's translated envy a number of times is also, it's, it's the root word is zeal. And so it's translated both ways. The, the Greek word, it sounds like zeal in, in, in our, in, in just, it's almost a transliteration. But sometimes it's envy and sometimes it's zeal and, and sometimes it's a good zeal and sometimes it's a bad zeal. Think of the envy of the Jews. Think about Paul's zeal for the law before he met Jesus. So desire, ambition, 
zeal, these are a cluster of realities that are either holy or unholy. Righteous or unrighteous. But the thing we have to realize is that God created us hungry. God wants us to be full of desire and ambition for good things. So sin twisted this. The woman saw the fruit. It was good for food, pleasant for the eyes, a tree to be desired for making one wise. And she coveted, she lusted. She grasped for a gift that God had not given yet. And so she took the fruit and ate it and gave it to her husband who ate. Cain, right after the fall, Cain envies God's acceptance of Abel's sacrifice despises God's blessing on his brother, resents that, envies it, desires it, and kills his brother. Satanic envy, satanic desire says, this is not right. I'm going to fix this. God could not possibly want to withhold that thing from me, given how hard I've worked, given how much good I've done. And it grasps. It demands. Envy begins taking action to rectify the situation. And envy often justifies it. Envy often has sort of this veneer of piety about it. It's not right that I should not have this promotion. It's not right. I can't provide for my family. God wants me to provide for my family. I need to have this. And it begins telling stories about how this is not right, that I do not have this blessing now, this blessing yet. God wants me to have children and I haven't been blessed with children. Or God wants us to be married and I, 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 I'm not yet married. God, God wants us to have, and, and it begins to, explain why that's wrong and then begins and, and initially it's just justifying why it's okay for you to think that way but then very quickly it turns into action maybe initially you give a cold shoulder to the one who's been blessed with that thing that you believe you really deserve it's just hard to be around them you say with all those blessings that i ha- i don't have yet i don't have it's really hard to be around. They're really, and then, and then in that sort of pseudo piety, you begin explaining why it really isn't good that they even have it. I mean, I think I would use that kitchen way better than she does. I'm not sure they really appreciate it. They've always had nice things, so I don't think they appreciate it like I would because I haven't had very much in my life. And if I had that blessing, man, I would be the most grateful person. I'm not sure they're really that grateful. That's envy. Or when someone near to you, close to you, is blessed in that way that you are working so hard for, praying so hard for, and that sick feeling in your gut. That's envy. Jesus was handed over to be crucified by the Jews because of envy. The Jews had created this whole narrative. 
he, he, he's messing everything up. We, we have, we figured out how we can exist. We got back into the land from our exile. We figured out a way to exist with the Romans and, and we're trying to keep the laws right because we got kicked out of the land for breaking Sabbath and for not being faithful to the covenant. We're keeping the law now. Nobody screw this up. And then Jesus just comes waltzing through healing people on the Sabbath. Stop. Careful. We've got this. We've been working so hard for this. We're trying to get God's blessing. And he doesn't care. And then he's popular. And he's getting the attention that, what? We're the teachers of the law. We're the ones authorized by God to teach. What? He's messing everything up. And that envy begins telling this, he, he must have demons. He, he, he's a blasphemer. He's got theological problems. We're not with him. He's a problem. You all watch out for him. We're not associated. And then when it doesn't slow down, it's, we got to get rid of him. He's destroying everything. He's messing up everything. The Jews handed over Jesus because of envy. All cultures run on desire. All cultures. All cultures run on desire. They run on hunger. And the only question is, what kind is it? You are hungry. Some of you are like, yes, I am. No, I mean like, you know, hungry. You do have desires. You do have goals. You do have ambition. The question is, is it a satanic envy or is it a righteous zeal for the goodness of God, the good gifts of God, the glory of God? All cultures, all communities run on desire. That satanic envy fundamentally is based on a zero-sum principle. The satanic envy says, it, it thinks of the world and God's blessings like a fixed pie. And, and which means that if somebody else gets a bigger slice of the pie, what does that mean? It means you necessarily are going to get a smaller piece of pie because more of it got taken and that's all there is. That's what satanic envy thinks like. They have it and that means there's less of it for me. Christian zeal looks at the world that God has made. Christian hunger, Christian desire looks at the world that God has made and says, my father made all this. It's never going to run out. That's what Christian zeal does. Christian zeal looks at the gifts of God and says, my father made all this, it'll never run out. That pie is growing. It's getting bigger. And, and, and it's on purpose. Like God gives big pieces of pie to other people for you to know it's bigger. There's more. There's more where that came from. Satanic envy thinks if someone else has it, then I can't. There's less for me. But righteous hunger 
Righteous desire says, if my God can give a good gift like that to them, then I can look to my Father to give me good gifts like that. So, how do you respond to the blessing of God? Particularly on others. Do you respond to the success, to the excellence, to the material blessings, to the spiritual blessings, to the spiritual maturity that you see around you when you see that marriage thriving? When you see the way those, that husband and that wife talk to one another and, and are on the same team and love one another and encourage one another, do you think, man, that's awesome. God, help me to grow in my marriage like that. You give like that. You give marriages like that. Or you see a, a family when they're kids and, 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 you, and you just think, man, look how they're, they're so happy together and, and they get along and they love one another and you look in the backseat of your car and, you know, it's on fire. <laughs> what, what do, you, do you think to yourself, ah, why can't I have that? Or do you say, God, you give that gift. So Father, please give it to me. Or maybe it's the church. Maybe it's the ministry. Maybe it's the podcast. Maybe it's the, the, the vocational success. They, they have the same business as you and their business is blowing up. Are you critical? Do you resent it? Or does it drive you to seek excellence? Does it drive you to seek your Father who gives those good gifts? God's blessing is intended to create competing cycles of imitative excellence. God's doing it on purpose. He's doing it on purpose, and this is how God intends to save the world. That's what Paul says in Romans 11. This is the plan. The Jews are hardened for the time until his blessings, the fullness of his blessing comes down upon the Gentiles, all the nations of the world, and the Jews are going to begin seeing that blessing, and they're going to say, wait a second, our Father blesses like that. Let's go home. And he says, and what will be the result of that but the salvation of the world? That's true on a macro scale, but that's also true on a micro scale. The gospel is intended to bring blessing to God's people with persecutions, with eternal life in view, with God himself as our chiefest treasure, because it all comes from him, so that the people around us will see. And they will say, where'd you get that? And you say, it's all from my father. I'm a son, I'm a daughter of the king of the universe. And he owns everything. He's given me some of it. And you can have some too.
this is the kind of provocation we're aiming for. Right? We're to be provoking like this. Not in look what I got, but look what my father gave. And there's more. There's way more where that came from. Godly zeal sees the good gifts of God and desires them because they are tokens of the infinite goodness of God. And so we should want to fill our lives with that goodness, hunger and thirst after his goodness, so others will taste and see that he is good. So let your light shine before men so they will see your good work and glorify your Father in heaven. Our God and Father, we praise you. We thank you that you are the good giver of all good gifts. I pray, Father, that we would receive this word and and we would hold it rightly, that we would recognize that every good gift is a token of your goodness, your infinite goodness, that, that we would prize you above it all. But Father, I also pray that we would not despise any of your good gifts to us. I pray, Father, that you your blessing would particularly rest on this congregation, this community, that it would it would rest here because of your grace, because of your mercy, and it would be the right kind of provoking both to those within this congregation, but also to those without. And that you would draw this whole community to your goodness. We ask for it in the mighty name of Jesus. And amen.